You're listening to a Milky podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which we operate, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And with respect to where our collaborators, guests and listeners are, we extend our acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present. Hello, my name is Patrick Hayes and this is Producers in Conversation. This podcast is all about a space for producers to discuss, share triumphs, experiences and difficulties as we explore the ever-elusive question, what is a producer anyway? I've been in this industry for about 10 years now and I'm still not sure I know the answer. Today I am joined by Charlie Sanders, co-artistic director of House of Sand, as we discuss practices within the arts world and how we as producers are trying to create healthier practices in the arts community. We also talk around the difficulties of being a producer within spaces where we might be working with diverse communities where we do not represent that diversity ourselves. Charlie, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My name is Charlie Sanders. I am a theatre director slash producer slash actor, I suppose, in that order. I'm a transgender woman, uh, so she, her pronouns, and I am currently lying on the beautiful grass of the lands of the Ngunnawal people, what we call Canberra, and what indeed they called Canberra, with slightly different pronunciation. But I, I usually live and work on the lands of the Gadigal in the Eora Nation, in all of these beautiful countries, and the lands of these ancient cultures that we're so lucky to be able to live and make art and do things on. Yeah, I run a company, independent theatre company called House of Sand and also have done quite a lot of uh, independent producing and producing for predominantly for festivals and particularly the open access festival sector. So I was at the Sydney Fringe Festival for three years until uh, the end of 2021 and just finished up a stint at the Sydney World Pride Festival uh, on the Pride Amplified program there. So that's kind of where I come to you from in both place and context. Yeah, wow. Like that's obviously like very, very busy last couple of years. And yeah. Everything like World Pride, that's still like coming up though, right? Like that's next month. Yep. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so World Pride is next March uh, when Mardi Gras usually is. It kind of sits over the top of Mardi Gras for this yeah. one off World Pride year. And so the, this is kind of insider industry stuff, but it will be of interest to this listenership, I think, that the Pride Amplified program, which is the open access kind of fringe program within World Pride, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit similar to a fringe and it also includes a lot of community events and a lot of parties yeah. and that kind of stuff. And uh, it's being administered and run as a partnership between the Sydney Fringe, obviously, because we've got the open access, I say we, I was because I was there for so long, but we've got the open access kind of expertise in running running those kinds of festivals. Mm. And then obviously World Pride as an institution has the the queer community and the um, connections to Mardi Gras and, and they're managing the big headline program, which people would be seeing getting released and rolling out and Kylie Minogue's doing something and Peaches is coming and yeah. um, all of that kind of stuff is is kind of World Pride's bag and then we're doing the open access bit together. So that's been a really great, um, really great little gig. But I had a, I had a show to direct. So I set it all up, ran the first round of registrations and then tapped out, handed it over to my beautiful colleague, Alice Terry, who is running the second round of regos and then through to roll out. Although I'm hoping, fingers crossed they haven't offered me a job yet, but I'm hoping I'll be back for a couple of months around festival time to um, 
see it to fruition. Oh, look, like like without being in, engaged with that team or within that space, but just knowing the kind of events, I am sure there will be a plethora of work closer to the event. <laughs> this uh, is what I've been thinking too. Yeah. yeah. I actually have never done the Mardi Gras experience, which I, um, I'm a... I'm a I won't say I'm a bad queer man, but I haven't done the Mardi Gras, but I have been thinking about trying to come over for a weekend or so during the World Pride just to be able to be like, oh, no, I was there when it came if, to yeah, Australia. If you're going to do Mardi Gras, I think that World Pride is the year to do it. I mean, I, I tend not to be at Mardi Gras very often. I've done it a few times, but for a Sydney sider, I'm not there very often because... I spent seven years living in Adelaide and getting growing to love and adore the Adelaide Fringe and Festival. Mm-hmm. And so every year I tend to go to that and I have yeah. a community there and I'm connected to the touring artists at the back every year and so on and so forth. And uh, so I so I prioritise that at over Mardi Gras and so I miss it most years. Um, but the World Pride program is absolutely phenomenal. Like it's it's... Uh, it's an amazing, the, the full arts program hasn't been released. I know almost nothing more than the public. Almost everything was um, was a surprise to me when it was announced. But what's being announced and, and knowing Dan Clark's curatorial eye and Ben Greats, I mean, they're both phenomenal. But Dan particularly, I think, is just one of the, the great curators of, of this country of performing arts. And it's going to be um, for arts people, it's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be an amazing, amazing, amazing arts program. And then, like, there are maybe not a hundred. I keep I keep saying a hundred. Probably not a hundred. It's probably like sixty. But there are a lot of parties. Yeah. There's like five parties a night for seventeen nights. You have got your pick of everything. Like, it's going to be it's going to be wild. I'm not. They're not paying me to say any of this, but it's going to be wild, and you should be there. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. I think um, after the very difficult years I had due to lockdown at midsummer. I took like about a year or so um, away from any kind of queer event. Uh, yeah. at all. I just was like, yeah. I, I love everyone in my community, but I need to not listen to you for <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. a year. And I think hopefully I'll be in the point, but also um, in my version of that, I guess is we also will be re- representing um, artists at Adelaide fringe and then also comedy festival, which is just like all happening yeah, at that course. same time. But yeah, yeah, anyway, um, we could probably keep on talking around this stuff for the rest of the episode, but... Uh, we could, but, you know, we shouldn't. <laughs> we, we've got a framework that we stick with. Um, yeah. So, uh, Charlie, I guess uh, one of the first questions we have is, like, what is your definition of a producer? Yeah, that's such a um, such a fraught little question, isn't it? Because I, I feel like a producer in... It can mean so many things. I've got friends in the music industry where a producer is the person who makes the track and you know, that goes with the, the artist's beautiful lyrics and, and melody or uh, and a producer in main stage theatre is very different to a producer in independent theatre and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But I think in in its essence, the producer is the, the person that makes the thing happen in the world. Like a director, for instance, makes the thing happen on the stage. But as, a, as someone who does both, the producer brain, I feel like, is the the person that does everything outside of the rehearsal room and the studio to make that work. And that can mean so many different things depending on on what 
other resources you have at your disposal. If you're producing in the independent sector, obviously that can mm. mean doing literally everything outside of the rehearsal room. If you're producing for the Fringe or the Sydney Theatre Company or Sydney World Pride or whoever, then that could mean that you've got a marketing team at your disposal and a you know partnerships team at your disposal, a technical team at your disposal, and it's much more about making sure that all those ships keep afloat and sailing. But in my definition, the producer is the person who makes sure the thing happens in the world. And there's a great word in, in French, because I'm super pretentious like that, and I like <laughs> to uh, say things from other languages that don't exist perfectly in English. Um, but there's a great word in French. They talk about the um, réalisateur, which, is, which literally means realizer. And uh, that it's a role that's kind of like, it, it may well be a creative role, Often realisateurs are kind of auteur director producers mm -hmm. or not necessarily auteurs in the, in the kind of creative sense, but in the um, sense of having ownership. And uh, I suppose that's kind of how I see myself as a producer is that I uh, create and facilitate the creation of work that I want to reach the world. And a decent chunk of the time, that's my own work as a director and creative person. And then another decent chunk of the time, that's work that I believe in or I believe in uh, an ethic at a festival of bringing the work of others to the community and to audiences. So, yeah, the person who makes it happen in the world. Yeah, I think that's a great point because like also like you were also alluding, we, me and Laura had some big conversations before we started this podcast because even looking at producers in our own right on just like the different genres as well as you were kind of hinting at where different styles of different kind of like even moving into other words where like visual arts have more like curators and organizers rather than mm -hmm. producers and um the different language that kind of influences those points and as like yeah tv film radio are a lot more technical based kind of producers in that kind of music and audio sense but yeah, it's a really interesting, I think, yeah, setting up the context around a work is definitely, yeah, we kind of pick up the the little bits and the adapter to make sure that the show actually exists in a, a general public sense, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, so why did you become a producer? I'm going to be super candid on that one and not give a fun or interesting answer at all. I became a producer, well, I suppose it's fun or interesting actually in some ways. I became a producer because I was a creator who wanted my work in the world and I didn't have a producer easily at my disposal, so I became one, which I think is a pathway that quite a lot of producers take in the first instance. Um, yeah. I, I, but, but, I'm, but I'm different to, I think, many producers, maybe not even most and certainly not all, but different to something that, producing in and of itself isn't wasn't originally a passion mm -hmm. um my passion was was making work and um and i wanted to get it out there because you know art in a um art without an audience is masturbation but yeah so I, that was the kind of initial motivation and then i think i realized over the course of some years producing my own work and beginning to assist friends with producing their work and colleagues that I had respect for and thought their work deserved to be seen, that actually the producer's role itself, A, can be fun and fulfilling. There's nothing, there's nothing quite 
thrilling in the same way as as a balanced budget sheet or mm-hmm. a or, or a or a perfectly constructed grant application piece of grant application text or whatever it may be also that the producer's role can be a creative role and that it can have a creatively fulfilling element and so i have kind of moved into a phase where now the reason i produce is to creatively facilitate opportunities for artists that I think are wonderful, including myself, um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to share their work and to use my creative brain to, in service of the process of getting a work from twinkle in the eye of a creative person to twinkle in the eye of an audience member as they leave a theatre or a, or a warehouse or a gallery or whatever. Yeah, so that's that's why I produce now, which is probably a, a better answer or a more important answer, if anything can be considered important these days, um, <laughs> than why I started producing. Both yeah. are there, you know? No, I think, like, and I think you're right. There is a, a very common trajectory for a lot of producers where they are a creative, um, whether that be uh, the director, artist, or anything within that kind of point where they're making work and then someone steps up to make that work happen, whether it's in a solo, you might be a solo artist, you might be in an ensemble, all that stuff. And then most of the time the trajectory seems to be someone steps up and does it and then people realise that that person has some skills in that specific sense and then they just kind of keep doing it or get asked to do it by other people and then suddenly they're producing five people at like a fringe festival and all of that kind of stuff and suddenly they're a producer that's kind of the like yardstick there's only a very few of us i've ever encountered that like laura and i are examples of producers who were kind of we started we've only been producers that's kind of where we all just started and Mm. just kept doing it basically and yeah i think i don't know in my when i ask these questions to people like i think there are also just some people who are like Natural producer sounds like a very cocky statement, but just people who are organizers or passionate around like helping facilitate things. Um, because yep. like I'm in my spare time, I do a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. And someone finally <laughs> pointed out to me that I keep on becoming the dungeon master because that's effectively a producer for that game. Yep. You're the organizer, you're setting up, you're giving the resources, you're providing context, you're enabling all these like artists to explore their own characters and spaces. And yeah, it's something that there is just like a little fire of passion that that really brings out. It's really beautiful to see a creative, not just an audience enjoying artwork, but also artists and creatives enjoying their work and feeling accomplished there is like a really lovely feeling when that happens yeah Yeah. and that's that's become really essential to my kind of producerial practice i suppose is facilitating healthy and potentially healing creative spaces for artists i i look around our industry and look at it's a lot better than it once was but yeah. as a you know as a artist from a sexuality and gender minority background and and with lots of friends and colleagues across all kinds of all of the great breadth of our diversity of our you know national community and international community i i have noted that the arts is really hard on people yeah. um like even harder than the rest of the world um a lot of the time 
and and not necessarily through anyone's fault but there are some there are some dodgy business practices out there there's some advantage taken of people and there's certainly some kind of like uh, unexamined methodologies techniques business modes that that allow re-traumatization that allow kind of you know uh, not less than ideal circumstances for creative people and as someone who's been part of that and party to that and as someone who earnestly and deeply believes that the arts can be is often and can be healing and healthful and and good for the world and good for the artist who's doing it that's become kind of a central thread of my my work and i think it's uh, you know in its small little bubble i think that is quite important work and I, i'm far from yeah. i'm far from perfect at it and there's lots of good people doing it and i have lots of learning to do and i've made some mistakes in the in the pursuit of that particularly when serving when attempting to serve diverse communities that i don't have a, a kind of lived understanding of what their experience or cultural difference is but that's the i think that's the endeavor is to make art to make art making uh, a joyous and healing experience for the artist and for the audience even if sometimes the subject matter is is pretty dark and mm. fucked up and and wild to, to allow it to be to be healthful and and healing especially especially for the artist because i think the audience have their own agency in in the choice of how they see work but especially for the artist yeah oh absolutely and i think there is yeah i think it takes a, it takes a village to make that change happen and it has been incrementally changing even from my time in the industry where i've seen a lot more people advocating for healthier practices and you know more care I guess, is a probably a strong word. But I was even talking to another producer friend uh, last week, I think, actually, and I likened, I listened to a lot of, like, cult podcasts where they kind of cover cults um, and they do, like, a list of, uh, like, what classifies as a cult for them. And honestly, everything that they they said, like, said, I was like, there are maybe not the entire art sector, but there's definitely, like, sections of the art sector that I'm like, yep, you know, there's a figurehead normally in power that's kind of promising things that never fully happen and people give up work, they get separated from their personal lives by work and they get distanced from friends outside of that community and all of these things. And I was going, yeah, there is definitely some unhealthy <laughs> things, that, especially in the emerging when you're learning and kind of learning which opportunities to say yes and no to. And I used to always give lectures at like universities around like, I think I used to call it like the five different currencies where it was kind of, and Laura talks around like finding your why with projects and making sure you know exactly why you're doing a project. But, you know, I kind of was like, you know, there is money, but there is experience and joy and all of these other kind of things, but you should be making sure that you're at least getting a couple of those in a project and not just being used and those kind of situations. But And I think, I think that's right. I mean, I I have that, that um, finding your why thing that Laura has talked about in her, uh, her boot camps and stuff that many of which, you know, are are the places where I've gained much of my skill as a producer. I think that that's become really integral to me in when I'm, whether I'm doing a project as a producer or a creative, what's my why in it. 
And I think the, the next step, it, it's so important. And the next step of that too is to be transparently informed and knowledgeable about what you are sacrificing or what mm. you're risking or giving up to do to, to gain those things and and to, to to go in with eyes open to all those choices and i think the the artist has or whoever it is the person making the choice to do the project has the responsibility to weigh those things honestly and 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 go into any project with an open heart yeah. and knowledge of and accepting of the circumstances that they're going into but the producer uh in particular the producer has the responsibility i think and it's not always the case to ensure that that is a transparent transaction that they are letting people know that you know this is for instance this is a co-op show you probably won't make a great deal of money the majority of the box office will end up back paying off the costs of the work it'll mm -hmm. probably be a few hundred bucks but we will make sure that you are looked after in the rehearsal room, that it is a joyful experience, that we're flexible around your other work and other needs, you know, whatever the situation may be. Or it might be like, yes, we can pay you equity minimum, but we are going to take over your life for the next eight weeks and you will be at our beck and call and our demand. And that's, and because you're getting paid equity, that is, you know, the gig. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't advocate that being the gig. Everyone has lives and, you know, yes. we've got an artist at the moment who we're working with who's got a um, an eight-year-old daughter and a um, somewhat unwell mother that both of whom she lives with and, and is the carer for. And despite being paid equity minimum, we have obviously made allowances for yeah. all of those life circumstances as as is our, our, as our ethics kind of demand that we do and care for this this wonderful, wonderful artist. But, you know, uh, I think transparency, more so than the situation, although the situations themselves can always be improved and we can always be seeking to improve those situations and have more care in the situations we provide, hmm. a big part of the producer's role is to provide that transparency to artists and make sure that they're able to make, uh, I'm talking kind of early on in the process during hiring and whatever and casting, but make sure that artists are able to make those decisions from a place of informed consent, basically. Informed yeah. consent to be part of that project, even to the extent, and I don't think I've ever known a producer to do this, and I don't work with people who I think are abusive, but uh, were I being offered a gig with a director or leader that was wonderful and a genius, but uh, a little bit abusive, for instance, then I would very much value the producer saying to me, this is going to be a great thing for all of these reasons, but you're going to have to work with a bit of an asshole, you yeah. know? And, uh, in, you know, probably they wouldn't phrase it that way, but I think that's really integral, really integral to the producer's work, yeah. Yeah, I think the closest I've ever had to something similar to that is I was once working in a festival where I had an international artist where I was supporting and they were... Um, they were just an awful person. Like, you know, they could create beautiful art, but they were just an awful person. And I had to hire production staff to support them um, while they were here. And I did like a, I did that kind of meeting where I was like, look, here are the things that I've experienced. Also, what I'm going to do now is, I, and I, I kind of positioned it as like, I, what I want to do is leave you in space and I can, Throw me under the bus, like use my name like mud. I don't really care. I give you full permission, whatever makes the system work best. Give me a call every time you need like something on the budget 
approved or not approved and I can say no, but what I'm more concerned about is that they're not being awful to you on site and creating that space and kind of, we, we, we had systems in place and I was like, you can let me know, we'll figure it out. You are, you are not meant to be in this. And, you know, once again, they were very lovely to the production staff because like once often the production staff are the ones that can make stuff happen while the producer is the one saying no, but yeah, it's a very interesting kind of skill set to have, I think, and to create those safe spaces. And I think you're right. Transparency is the biggest yeah, yeah, in those places. I mean, at House of Sand, we kind of have a, you know, policy of no assholes and, and in, in a, in a, in a more kind of, fruitful way we and it's actually it's in our code of conduct and we we take our code of conduct really seriously that we believe that the best person for the job is the best person for the room not just the best person for the role yeah and and we take that really really seriously we we don't brook divaism or or kind of bad you know bad collegiate oh. behavior because you're famous or because you're this that or the other yeah you've got to be you gotta be the right person for the room you know there are times where we all have to work with people that you know maybe maybe not through being an asshole but maybe through some trauma of their own that they're dealing with yeah. and haven't fully gotten through or, or some challenge or or just you know they're trying really hard and and you know getting getting educated but haven't yet got there mm they're a little you know insensitive or whatever it may be and working if you choose to work with those people working with those people to nuance and improve and and refine and better their behaviors and and also working with the people that they work with to ensure their safety and to create systems and and you know ensure that they're being made informed and then protected as best as you possible possibly can i think yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're kind of talking around the, the like skills. And this is obviously a very big skill that we've been talking that we think producers yeah, should yeah. have. Is there any other top core skills that you would say the producer needs to have? I mean, there's a few. There's some there's some logistical ones. You know, there's there's you, one has to be organized. It's a job that requires a, a fairly high degree of organization. Good with spreadsheets is pretty much integral. Mm-hmm. And and I think for me, it's about it's about the skill of keeping balls in the air, not literal balls, but you've got to be the person who can have your eye on, you know, whether you're doing it yourself or mm. um, you have a team out doing it, you've got your eye on the marketing, you've got their eye on the publicity, you've got your eye on, you know, within that, the ad spend and the and the postering and flyering and the socials. And you've got your eye on what's happening in the creative space, in the rehearsal room or studio, uh, mm-hmm. having your eye on any partnerships, on production, on technical, and making sure that no ball gets dropped. Yeah. So it's that kind of organizational thinking, web-like thinking, and and kind of capacity to multitask, and also willingness to do the thing that picks up the ball that's about to be dropped. I think it's a big part of a producer's job, especially in the independent sector, is the willingness to do whatever is needed and whatever you haven't haven't got facility for to plug up the holes in the team. Because almost no team, I mean, like I was working at the Sydney Theatre Company earlier in the year as an actor, and there were times when, you know, the producers would need to step across into something that could be seen as technical management or stage management. Um 
for a moment. I mean, you know, it's an incredibly well-resourced company, so that doesn't have, you know, comparatively speaking, by these country's standards, so that doesn't happen nearly as much there. But right up mm. to that kind of fully professional level, the producer needs to be the one who's like, yep, I'll jump in and man the bar at the donors function because the bar tentacled in sick or, you know, whatever it might yep. be. So that willingness, which is a skill in itself, I think, to enter into those spaces with joy because you know you're in service to the whole and to the to the product. Even if, I mean, you know, no one loves pouring champagne. I mean, some someone probably does, but no one loves, almost no one loves pouring champagne at a donor function. Um, you'd much rather be out there schmoozing with the donors and drinking their champagne, of course. <laughs> but to go, well, no, I'll I'll do that thing because I want these people to have their champagne because their their relationship to this work and their funding is incredibly important to us, mm -hmm. so that we can get this work to the audience. You know, and and being able to go yeah. into that with joy. I think is a skill. I think is a real skill. And, and of course, there are lots of other skills, but a little bit like most education, I feel like there's a few baseline things and mm. then the rest you can kind of learn as you go along as the skill, you know, when you're asked to pour a glass of champagne, you can watch the person who's already pouring a glass of champagne and know to tip the glass to the side. Yeah. Um, you can pick the other stuff along the way. You can learn how to use Canva. You know, you can figure out how to use Squarespace and build someone a website. Or, you know, you can you can prod a stage manager and go, how do I run a rehearsal room when the, you know, when I need to run a rehearsal room for a day? But those baseline skills of being organized, having your being able to keep your mind across the many, many things, and then having the willingness to go into any of those fields with joy and learn to do it as best you can and plug the gaps, I think mm -hmm. are the kind of they're the instrumental ones for me, for sure. Yeah, I think honestly, I think you hit the head, like the nail on the head. Like the one main core thing I would say producers need to be is like non-stagnant, like be able to be flexible and to learn. That is our main thing. Once you have that skill down, everything else can kind of fall into place and you can develop and go, as you said, go along and catch the balls as they're dropping and those kind of situations. But yeah, the, the producers I've seen that have really struggled have been the ones that have been very, like, stoic and not willing to kind of learn in many different ways yeah, when things yeah. change. But, you know, our industry is one that fluctuates so much anyway. Like, things change. Marketing's changing a lot at the moment from print media to more digital and advertising. And, you know, you've got to really keep up with the times um, or else it's easy to get left behind i guess as well um, I, I think that's absolutely right it's it's a, it's, it's a role that requires a kind of almost kind of uh, unending flexibility yeah <laughs> not necessarily physically although that probably helps in some some <laughs> uh projects if you've got to you know crawl under a set and you know mm -hmm. put bolts in things or whatever or, or for that matter you know run a room full of dancers as i'm yep. doing at the moment but kind of intellectual mental flexibility to to dive in and 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 as you say, keep up with the times, keep up with the breadth of the industry too. I mean, the you know, I, I've never produced for the Sydney Theatre Company or, or for a main stage company, but I have, you know, friends and colleagues in those fields and their job has massively different requirements to an independent producer. Mm. And if you want to be able to move across those fields, potentially to some places where you can make a bit of a wage rather than being, you know, the person on whom the profit depends, like you are in the independent, one is in the independent sector, then, then that flexibility is so integral. And I think the thing that I've learned too is that people will know, generally speaking, you might, you might get a few assholes along the way, but generally speaking, people will know that, not everything can be your field of expertise, but 
as with all roles in the arts, but I think yeah. particularly for producers, people will be thankful to you for for going in and plugging those gaps. I always, when we were at acting school, my undergraduate degree is in acting, and I, we in second year, the first term of second year, we had to do like a project at the end of the um, first term where we did a little bit of sewing classes. We ran the lights for something. We learned how to run a lighting board. We learned how to run a soundboard. We we did a little bit of sewing skills. We managed the costumes. We 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 managed the stage. We did all of the other jobs that are inside the rehearsal room. And we uh, and and our our teachers told us, you know, point blank, this is so you develop respect for this, mm-hmm. and so that if you're working on a project when there's a little gap in the team, there you can jump in and you can be the person that people want back, that people want to work yeah. with, because you've got that little bit of extra skill. You can, you know strum a few chords on the guitar or bash out a few chords on the piano or you can you know run the lighting board when the dramaturgy requires that the lighting board's on stage and a performer has to run it or whatever it is that means you're like you're a value add beyond your central practice and i think that exactly the same thing is true of producers our main thing might be organizing everyone else and might be wrangling budgets and grant applications and you know funding and 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 venue bookings and that kind of stuff but if you can talk informally to the marketers because you've done a bit of it for yourself and and be on a level with them and jump in when they need a bit of a hand or you can do the same with the technical production staff or the or have a creative conversation with the director about like what in this work is is actually going to resonate with audiences right now one of the things that i'm um i'm having a conversation with myself and my choreographer and and co-artistic director uh, we're talking a lot about what audiences need right now and it's not my director's brain or the choreographer's job necessarily to be attuned to the mood of the audience you know but as a producer it's very much your job you know Mm. creatives are able to go into the little bubble and be in service to themselves and that's all for the better but as a producer you need to be able to go actually you know for instance right now in the wake of COVID and all of the stresses that we've had and the isolation people legitimately need work that warms the soul um and that can be funny work and comedy is doing wonderfully at the moment so it should be because you know there's there's wonderful comic comedic art out there across all sorts of art forms but uh it can also just be a heart a heartwarming tender work you know and having that conversation with artists being able to see those things and help creators to sculpt that is is integral yeah looking at all those skills what like what is one thing that you struggle with as a producer and how do you combat that i think one of the things that i struggle with is just how much there always is to do you like it's a job it's one of those roles that could go forever you could just keep working forever and ever and ever and ever and ever amen and you've kind of got to know when to close your laptop and go to bed because you know otherwise you could just work through the night and you've also got to know what work to prioritize and i i struggle with that i've only really recently learned that my email inbox is somebody else's to-do list and that's not always my top priority (laughs) i used to think i had to clear my inbox first and respond to all the things and then other stuff that is way more important to actually what's going on would get lost and missed or be rushed or whatever so uh, that that prioritization of a job that could go forever, I think, is um, and, and accepting that you could always do more and you won't get everything done. 
that's a big one for me. Mm. And I'm I'm just now starting to learn some really solid techniques for for actually doing that skill, and I still struggle with it substantially. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's an ongoing one myself that I've been learning because um, there's also like a level where you you come to terms with your own like priority list as well but then you'll also be working with like another external producer or someone who has a very different priority list yeah like yeah, sometimes you get like urgent emails where I look at it and I'm like is this really urgent like <laughs> how urgent is this exactly what? is it kind of you know end of the world nuclear war urgent or is it just yeah. like you know yeah totally <laughs> Why am I getting three emails about this on a Friday? That's not, yeah. I don't understand why you're stressing about this one thing. I don't, yeah, okay. I think this is a Monday um, problem, babe. Um, the, the, yeah. the one for me, like literally last night, I was booking them with like flights because flights are getting so astronomically more expensive, which oh then was God, really interesting wild, right? that that was like an external pressure put on where I was like, well, actually I should just like work an extra couple of hours tonight because tomorrow they'll be more expensive and yeah. that's going to save us a little bit of money to do that. So yeah. it's, it's really and, interesting that level of, yeah, dance. Sorry, you were going to say something. No, absolutely. I, I think the I, – no, I can't remember what that was I was going to say. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll move Fair on. enough. Fair enough. So you're, you're in the middle of putting on a show. You've got rehearsals. You're one week in, as we kind of caught up a little bit before the recording. How is it going in the current climate of 2022? Which I will say for listeners – we're recording at the start of November 2022, just so you know, in the grand scheme of things, what is happening in the world. That's... Where we're at in the world. Because, you know, yep. it could all have changed by tomorrow. <laughs> um, yeah, midterms but, um, are happening in America. Who knows oh, what's yeah. happening? That's all like, the stuff. That's like two days away, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, as, as, a, as a creative or as a producer, creatively, it's going really, really well. And it's quite we have um well i suppose as a producer as well we've created an environment where we have this beautiful creative freedom because we're working with we're working in canberra but with majority mm. uh away artists majority artists who are not at home and so this is something that we do fairly regularly we are um it's, it's kind of like everyone's on summer camp which is really nice so that's been really wonderful and the, and the show's going fantastically although as i've said to a couple of people recently i I won't, as it's a brand new work, so I won't be quite sure whether the show works until the first company run next Friday. And by then, it'll be far too late to turn around if it doesn't work. So yeah. we'll have to figure out a way to make it work. Um, but that's the joy of making new work. As a producer, it's hard. It's, yeah. it's rough at the moment. Everyone is, everyone is exhausted and you want to do honour to that exhaustion. And there are, there are kind of, as, you know, there are as many kinds of exhaustion as there are people, but there are two really different major kinds of exhaustion. There's there's the independent artist exhaustion, which is the exhaustion of of stasis and not enough opportunity and no money and being on you know government payments for a stint when they might not have been otherwise and having no work and making you know YouTube videos for two years and all of that stuff. And then there's the salaried administrator manager exhaustion of having worked 80 hours a week for the entirety of the COVID lockdown era, which is, you know, the, the level of exhaustion that I'm in having, having been free, at fringe yeah. during those times. And they have really different effects and really greater sensitivity is required to 
you know, ensuring that people are happy and safe and all that stuff that we were talking about. But on the flip side, the wonderful, wonderful thing is that we are able to gather in space again now. And people are really appreciative of that when you've facilitated it. And that, and that love is, you know, shines and, and twinkles through. And it's so nice to be in a creative space with creative people doing creative things. So it's a mixed bag, but, you know, mostly for the better. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, it's really interesting because I've got obviously more of that experience of, I guess, salaried exhaustion. But I think mm-hmm. everyone, what I've been saying recently is it feels like everyone's hitting that December wall, but in October at the moment, like we're all hitting that end of the year wall specifically for 2022. Absolutely. But, in that longer COVID lockdown phase, it was really interesting. And one of the reasons I kind of wanted this podcast to exist was because as a programmer, I was talking to a lot of different producers to create a festival, but all of them were having like mental breakdowns and not talking about it with each other or in public spaces because we were the fortunate few that had salaries. Yeah. So there was this very like, which I guess I likened it to depression because to me that's what depression does. It's like very isolating and it makes you mm. feel like you're the only one experiencing that stuff because you can't talk about it or share it. Um, and just like, I, you know, I talked to all these different venue producers and stuff like that who are literally like for two years we were trying to figure out how to make art happen in Melbourne. Like it was just yeah, turning was- up and trying. <laughs> Yeah, it was wild. It was a wild two years from the inside of those institutions. And, yes, we were so lucky to have salaries. I was so lucky to have a salary at that time. Absolutely. Um, And yet, you know, like up in Sydney at the Sydney Fringe where I was in in that office over the two years of the kind of worst of COVID, we, our September festival was cancelled every, for two years running. But we, we didn't, you know, sit down and do nothing we we facilitated artists residency programs and we did online programs and we did everything we could to get money out the door to artists to get some work to happen while we were in lockdown or we were in kind of semi-lockdown and then because it was summer because we had been in lockdown in the winters the two winters essentially and we were freer in the two summers we then did big summer programs Mm. and so like i I actually, part of the reason that I moved on from my role at Fringe, it was time anyway for me to get back to my creative practice, but I was exhausted because I'd had two two years, two full years without any kind of holiday break. And yeah. Kerry Glasscock, who um, is a, just a wonder woman, I don't know how she does it, but she did the same then this February and just now got to the end of the first Sydney Fringe Festival back after the two years off and is about to like right now i think or or at the beginning of december go on her first holiday since christmas 2019 yeah um and so i think like while while our colleagues who were unsalaried at that time or were you know gigging have like all of my utmost kind of empathy and sympathy for the particular kind of stress and trauma that they went through in lockdown and and through losing all of their work and i can't I can only imagine yeah. what that must have been like. I think I would counsel those artists uh, who haven't yet heard this story <laughs> to um, maybe put give a little bit of give a little bit of you know additional just kind of care room to the people who did have a salary. But my God, we worked hard, and it was just wildly weird for yeah. three years and and utterly exhausting trying to you know help help uh help get 
some salaries or some wages back to um, back to all of our colleagues who didn't didn't have those salaried positions. Anyway, that's yeah. my little, you know, soapbox moment. But no, I, no, early no. on, there was a bit of animosity between those two groups. I think it's healing now, and I think that's wonderful. Um, yeah. And people are hearing each other's stories in really beautiful ways, but which is all for the better. But yeah, it's it's a lesson in how even kind of you know a, a, an unintended object, you know, something that's got no one to blame, like COVID, can can almost inadvertently kind of draw like uh, drive wedges where. Really, there shouldn't be wedges, especially if we're not communicating in these ways and being honest about our experiences and and meeting other people's experiences with kind of open hearts and minds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you know, this is not definitely this conversation is not meant to like place a value on who suffered more or any of those kind of points, because I think everyone had their own personal journeys Absolutely. Last I mean, two, three I, years. And I think we can just, we can just all agree that we've been through a massive global trauma and everyone has had a pretty fucking shit time of the last three years. Yeah. And there have been some beautiful silver linings, but basically everyone deserves each other's yeah. empathy and sympathy. Exactly. For I, what we've gone through. I think the main thing is just like, I want to say for any of the producers who were in that kind of position of still continuing working. And like for me, the example I always kept using was, um, I was working. 40 to 60 hour weeks, um, but with no actual ticking of any boxes ever, like no, oh, cool, I have done this thing because I'm still in limbo for two years. And that was like two years of just never seeing an artist smiling, performing, like those things that I would really light my fire to passion my producing, I just did not get to see. Yeah. Um, And that made it really hard. (laughs) And those, those, those kind of capstone moments in the arts are so important. I mean, other other industries, some other industries have them. Many other industries artificially manufacture them and have awards or have you know Christmas parties or whatever it is that they do. I don't know. I don't work in those industries, but um, but in the arts, it's those capstone moments, those opening nights, those you know your festival opens or or you have your showing at your creative development. They are intrinsic to the way we work. We work mm. on uh, you know cycles of, of creative production are cyclical like that and they and they go from you know genesis and and the kind of you know birthing of an embryo to to these big celebratory kind of capstone moments on any given project and those cycles can be annual like the festivals often are or they can be kind of two or three months like creative projects often are for the creative team but they they have that shape to them and where it's kind of it's almost in our blood and it's certainly in our habit to need those things and we just didn't get it for so long. And and that's that's really, really wearing, I think, on the soul um, for everyone in the industry. And it's really, I mean, I think this, this is one of the things that's lovely about the project I'm working on at the moment. We're not quite there yet, but I think we can safely say that we will get to an opening night finally yeah. <laughs> after yes. three. We, this project, actually, we started working on um, in the, during Black Summer bushfires uh, in oh, wow. January 2020, just before COVID. So it has been with us for this entire time. We did the first development here during Black Summer yeah. um, with half the team whipping up and down the hill from Sydney. So we were like, you know, having to time our runs to when there wasn't any fire on the highway. And then we did two creative developments primarily by Zoom over the course of um, over the course of COVID. The, the third creative development, the dancers were in the studio, but the actors and everyone else was on Zoom. And this is the first time we've all been back together in the studio since that very first development in January 2020. So I can't quite fathom what it's going to be like to get, finally get to this opening night. 
after three years and it being with us for all of that COVID time, I think it's going to be, it's going to be like giving birth, you know, when you're six weeks overdue, I think. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> in it's, a metaphorical um, sense, not literally, of course. I think there's a lot of artists that have gone through that process of like who were in the middle of creative processes for any kind of show that got suddenly ripped out of them. A lot of them are kind of coming to completion in the current festivals happening at the moment. And it's been really interesting to see that some of them, I, like, I've also talked to artists who really hated that process and they're just like, I just need to get this thing out um, and it's mm. now done and now I can move on with my life. And that's been really interesting to watch as well. I was yeah. I was feeling like that until we got back in the studio and being in the studio is just so much joy and fabulousness that it's it's totally yeah. abated in this last week, which has been amazing. Absolutely. Like, I'm very glad to hear that. That's a great, great outcome. Just aware of time. So we might move on to mm. asking how you go about funding your projects normally. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, as a, I'll talk primarily from the House of Sand perspective in this case, because yep. those are the projects that I have uh, kind of near unilateral control over the funding for. We work very much on the grant cycle. So uh, I believe the government should fund art. And so I put my money where my mouth is and I asked the government to give me money. <laughs> and um, Very fair, very fair. Yeah, and, and look, I, I obviously we have, we have a degree of, of box office dependency and we have some, a, a small circle of incredibly dedicated and wonderful donors and we have partnerships with other organisations like OnStarts ACT are working with us on That Was Friday, the current project, but uh, broadly the, we, we won't, we basically won't do our project until we get a grant, at least for the creation, if not for the production uh, these mm -hmm. days, um, because it's just the, the, the style of work that we make that is, while there is a substantial market for it and a growing market, it's contemporary performance of the, of the dance and theatre, somewhat esoteric variety, and it's just not commercially viable to try and make that work without some government, without some ex substantial external support in Australia, at least. So yeah, so we work on the on the grant cycle, but I've worked across, you know, pure box office shows that are, you know, either co-op or um, very small teams. And that can be really, really rewarding. But of course, the risk is that you never know what you're going to make until the back end. So we we have opted to, you know, stay within our ethical lane and say, we think the government should fund art, so we will make art that the government funds, basically. Mm. <laughs> Look, it's it's a staple. Like, I know that Winston Churchill was that all, like, a very awful figurehead in many history lenses, which is very good to bring that out. But, um, you know, that quote that gets trotted out of, like, when he was asked whether he would defund art, he's like, what are we fighting this war for kind of thing? <laughs> what are we going to war for if, if not to fund art? Exactly. So I, I, I think it's, um yeah, I think it should be a, government thing it improves the lives like and there's kind of countless studies on how art impacts communities and lives and everything for the better and it should be a government funded resource as we say as all absolutely of the government and, are and coming yeah and, and and i should get just i should say to get up on my soapbox just once more very briefly that it should also be totally arm's length from government the decision of who gets funded. It should be uh, assessed and decided by peers in the industry or some other new system yet to be invented. But this, the thing that really concerns me at the moment, actually COVID was a pretty good time for money in the arts, but mm. all of the new money that got injected, I'm thinking of the RISE fund and I'm thinking of a lot of the state-based funds, were ministerial discretion. And that yeah. 
can lead to propaganda and that can lead to pork barreling and that can lead to all sorts of horrible things that we don't want happening in our politics or our art. So yes, the government should fund art and the government shouldn't decide who gets the money. The industry and the the arts community and the audience community to a certain extent should decide who gets that because that's how you strike the balance between government funding for the art and government control of art. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. It's a really interesting conversation around those elements. And yeah, I agree. I think there should be a lot of like peer support and uh, kind of navigating through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and I think the Australia Council is one of the great, the great treasures of our nation and one of the great, one of the great arts development models, obviously modeled on the British Council originally. And look, it's, it's far less than perfect. And uh, there's always room for improvement, but I think protecting that funding body and its arm's length model of funding, and uh, and encouraging the encouraging it to, to be legitimately arm's length at every turn, and working towards similar funding bodies at the state level. Some have them, some don't. Some have the body, but not the arm's lengthness. You know, so on and so forth down the line. Is you know we're not we're not here to talk about uh, advocacy and activism, but if there are producers and artists out there who are inclined towards an advocacy bent or an activist bent, I think that that is a central piece of work that we must keep in our sights for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We're kind of getting towards the last couple of questions. I think we've talked quite enough about like mm. how important we think producers are in the sector. So I don't think we need to maybe re absolutely. Re, um, I think that's been iterated. <laughs> we, 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 we've covered that one. So now we've kind of got the last couple of two where we're, we're going to ask like your proudest and like one of the mistakes that you've made if you have one. So I guess like when it comes to producing, what is one of your proudest moments that you've had in your career? I think my proudest moment is this moment that I'm in right now. Actually, mm. this work is the first work that I have produced, I believe, that I have produced independently, I should say, outside of Mm -hmm. um, a a salaried context, where I have been able from go to woe for a brand new work of large scale with a large ensemble to uh, ensure that everyone was paid industry standard for essentially every moment of their work. As having grown up from an indie co-op, you know, little baby producer and having developed this over, as I um, think I mentioned, over three creative developments and now a full-length rehearsal period, that is a lot of money. It's somewhere in the tune of $250,000 of cash yeah. and $350,000 of uh, economic value that we've been able to create and generate and, and take through to artists. And that... The, the level of work in that is wild. And, of course, the product is something that I'm so incredibly proud of. Even though I don't know if it'll totally work yet, I'll still be proud of it. And uh, but, but being able to facilitate that, that style and that level of creation is something that, you know, I'm incredibly proud of. And to, and to find all that funding and, and bring it all together over that huge period of time has been one of the greatest joys and privileges and and prides of my um of my wee life mistake wise I, I won't share the details and i won't share any of the names because i think there's some there's still some tenderness around this but yeah in the industry uh in general and among these particular artists but sometime o- over the last few years there was a project that i was involved in where i 
was seeking very hard to be of service to a disadvantaged community that was not my own disadvantaged community. It wasn't the trans and gender diverse community. And yeah. I, I was earnestly seeking to be of service to that community and create uh, a lot of opportunities for them. Mm-hmm. And I was earnestly seeking to engage in, in consultation and to bring members of that community into the leadership and the control of those opportunities. And I didn't fully realise the depth and, and, and tiny nuance of some of the cultural differences that because I because it was is not my a community that I'm a part of it's not my lived experience to to know mm. their world I didn't fully understand those things and I made a, a, a series of small missteps that I deeply regret and that I now know a bit better on but I also am sure that there will be things that I don't know in the future and and I think I've learned that it's even more integral to do more of that community consultation even earlier in the process than I thought and to and to create teams before you even begin that are before you even like before it's even anything more than a twinkle of an idea that include representation and agency from all the groups that you're trying to work with because if you get even one step beyond that and we were only one or two steps beyond that you you run the risk of making some missteps and i don't i don't think anyone was you know horrendously harmed in the end and i i have made huge learnings i don't think anyone was was um was even non horrendously harmed in the end which i'm very thankful for but it's incredibly important to be working with and and placing the people who you're seeking to create opportunity for and with at the center and the beginning of that process. Yeah, yeah that's slightly roundabout because I don't want to talk about the, the no, specifics. No, no, and I, um, look, but I, I can empathize yeah. pretty strongly because, like, as, like, um, for any of those viewers who don't know who I am by now, I'm, like, a cis, white, male, queer man, but it's a space that I've worked in a lot. I've got a very um, gentle temperament. I've got a very mentoring temperament, which often means that in my world of working i've often worked within communities where i don't necessarily identify myself and have had to kind of be an advocate and support those Mm. programs which often i used to only get through like one or two years in those roles before i'd be like hey this feels weird that i'm the advocate role for this community because i'm Mm. not part of the community so let's yeah uh, analyze that but it's also one of those it's one of the biggest learnings i think when you're in that space is also is you will misstep that's going to happen because it's impossible for someone to know exactly how another community works and like something that you don't necessarily identify as important um, or clock is something actually very crucially important and all that stuff. Even when I went into midsummer and obviously, you know, we both exist within the queer community, but there is a, a choir of voices and perspectives that kind of exist, which isn't often always a choir. It's actually a shouting death match sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, you you know, you say things in one way and then that kind of impacts another community in a very different way. And it's a really, yeah. it's a tightrope. And I think one of the yeah. biggest skills that I've ever learned is just going, yep, made a mistake, adapting, moving on. I've apologised, yeah. I'm doing the things. Because, like, that was also the other end of the spectrum that I used to always find is, you know, 
someone working within a festival, someone does a wrong thing and then suddenly it becomes, it's not like that little incident was one thing, but then it's like we suddenly have five or six meetings of like apology meetings around this one incident, which is then just like making these poor staff members a lot more uncomfortable around it. And (laughs) yeah, I think it's always going to be a learning process and all we can do is our best in some of those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And it's so important to be able to apologize and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, right the wrongs and, and, and move forward into, to healing, especially in queer community, where, as you say, (laughs) we, Sydney World Pride released some, I I can't remember exactly what it was, some new tickets or just to various things or, or some new shows. And, and there was some dissent within the community as, as there is in a diverse community of, of, you know, of a level of diversity of the, as the LGBTQIA plus community and someone within the office, I won't reveal who, said to me, uh, you're not doing your job if there aren't some angry queers <laughs> because, you've, you, you know, there's, there's so so much variety of opinion and belief. But, but also to know that your mistakes are your wonderful opportunities for learning. I mean, I think, you know, coming back to pr- prideful moments and, and moments of... Um, of real fulfillment i think having learnt from that mistake that i sort of described in a roundabout way a moment ago i was so proud upon leaving sydney fringe to have been instrumental in facilitating the creation of three new staff roles within the sydney fringe festival an access a, a, a year-round access coordinator role that is a person living with disability identified role and will always and in perpetuity be filled by a person with a disability and a First Nations producer and a First Nations coordinator role that similarly are First Nations identified and will always and in perpetuity be filled by people and leaders and emerging leaders from our First Nations community. And, you know, having 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 learnt from a mistake and learnt from the world around me, I can now say without mm. fear of contradiction that I was instrumental in that really beautiful and maybe a, a a scooch overdue step forward on the part of the um the Sydney Fringe, which you know has a staff of like six people. Yeah. So prioritizing it at this stage was something that I'm so proud of. I'm so proud of Kerry and I for making a priority at this at this time and bringing to fruition. So you know the mistake is also the opportunity to have your next great moment of pride and success and and contribution. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I've had some of my biggest learnings within those spaces from mistakes. Well, our final closing question is based around if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice at the beginning of your career or somewhere in that starting point, what would it be? I think it would be the, a piece of advice which I give to, actually, can I give two? They're, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. I'm not going to, I won't limit you. <laughs> I think the first would be to learn as quickly as you can what you're good at and what you want to do because if you don't want to do it you'll never get good at it and you will not prioritize it and then uh delegate away the things that you aren't are the least good at and want to do the least first um i held on to doing my own marketing because it seemed like too much of an expense to employ a marketing manager or whatever for way too long and i just can't stand doing marketing i hate it i'm not good at it and so and now i say to people when they're approaching me about producing something i will absolutely produce this for you but i will only uh i will only work on a project where we've got a marketing manager 
because I'm just terrible at it. And I know I'm not going to do the show a service. And I know I'm not going to do myself a service by doing that role. So yeah, learn, learn what you, learn what you like and don't like and, and what you're good at and not good at as quickly as you can. And with, with a, you know, lens of, of truth on clear, clear sight and then delegate away the other stuff as efficiently and as effectively as you can, Mm -hmm. um, wherever possible. And then if you need to step back in for a moment, you'll, you'll hate it less, you know, when the, when there's a little hole in the team and you have to plug the hole, you Mm. will, you'll hate it less because you're only doing a little bit. And the other thing that I would say is when it comes down to the crunch, to make something happen, you've either got to spend money or time on it. Mm. Uh, know that and figure out which one you can afford and spend that on it. Uh, yeah. Nothing happens without huge amounts of money or huge amounts of time. And if you've got neither, you might need to reduce the scale of your work or you might re- need to reduce some of your immediate expectations yeah. and, do, and, and really assess and analyze how much money have you got, what can you afford to spend on what, and how much time have you got and what can you afford to spend on what. And if you don't have any time, you'll need some more money. And if you don't have any money, you'll need some more time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great, those are great really standpoints. Because like, I think also sometimes producers forget that we are often the ones that people are delegating work to. Like that's kind of why we exist. We are yeah, taking over work that people either see as a, their own weakness or that they just don't want to do. But then we kind of forget that that also applies to us and that there are certain skill sets that, like marketing is a great example, I think, in those spaces because people have done degrees in marketing. They have done a lot of work in marketing. Sometimes people work full time in marketing mm. positions. Of course, they're going to be better at it or have a bit more of a knowledge than me, who's just like, as you like, you know, working on Canva or Pixlr, which are great skills yeah. to have, <laughs> great stop gaps. But, you know, being the sole person to market massive shows or multiple seasons or things like that. Sometimes it's worth just paying that little bit extra for even just a consultation or something Absolutely. to be like, what's Absolutely. going on? Which I think that's also something I'd add to that is like, if you don't have a lot of money and you just want like a little bit of, you know, help, sometimes a consultation yeah. is worth its weight Absolutely. in gold. Um, yeah. Just someone to look over, even like if you have a producer friend or things like that, and you just want to go, hey, can I just pay like for an hour where we can sit down and go over my budget or someone you know who's like really good at uh, grant applications and you just want to pay them a little bit to kind of look over your grant applications or something like that. Like those things are measurable and really help build your own skill set up slowly as well. So you might be able to start doing those tasks more confidently. Yeah, absolutely. And and if there's stuff that you're not yet good at but you quite enjoy and you want to get good at it, absolutely. I think that in particular is where consultation and a kind of mentor relationship can be super super useful because you're not asking them to do the labor but you're asking them to uh, make sure that you're doing it well and learning how to do it better for the future and then you can embed that skill by doing it yourself absolutely yeah yeah i think um i've been many of my years of work i've been in charge of mentorship programs and that used to be the one thing i used to hammer home at the start of all of them is like sit down talk with a mentor develop like five things that you want to tick off at the end and be like I have achieved this thing. I have learned how to do this. I have learned how to do that. Because often when you just come into a mentorship being like, I just want to be mentored, it means that it's not, there's a lot of ambiguity. People get lost a lot. Mm, And then suddenly you end up at the end of a mentorship where people don't really feel like they've achieved anything or what they wanted to achieve. Even the mentors are like, I don't know, they turned up every so often. Um, We talked about stuff and then they left. That's it. But um, 
yeah. you have those clear things, kind of what you're saying is like know what you want to do or know what you are good at and what you aren't good at. And then a lot of self-reflection in that, I think, producers need to be very self-reflective over their own skill sets yeah. and understand that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. kind of the end of the conversation, Charlie. Thank you so much for taking your time to taking the time to talk to me and have this little uh, conversation around. It's been so lovely. Absolute pleasure. It was a joy. Listeners, we'll have some links from Charlie just in the uh, show notes and everything like that. So there's a plethora of things that I know Charlie's working on in the future, uh, as well as coming up very soon. So hopefully we'll be able to link to all of those. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time on Producers in Conversation. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Milky is your go-to for getting your show to the stage. We run industry-leading courses and workshops for independent artists and producers, covering everything you want to know about producing a show. Want to find out more? Head to our website, milky.com.au. That's M-I-L-K-E dot com dot A-U.